This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Tara DeLandraft on ABC Radio WA. And hello, yes, Tara DeLangraff with you on this Tuesday lunchtime, filling in for Belinda Varischetti, coming to you from the Esperance Studios, where I can see a little bit of blue out the window, but uh, positively overcast uh, for the rest of the sky, which is good news for those who are trying to get some crop in the ground. Shortly, we're going to hear about a hermit sheep in New Zealand that just did its own thing for almost five years. In other words, it had never been shorn. Well, on the Thursday afternoon, uh, morning, sorry, we were set off and there was Joel, myself and Steve, and I got the high road, so I followed the top of the hills and I was stumbling across with my two young dogs, Jet and Clove, and we ran into each other because obviously it's kind of wool blind, you didn't really see or hear me. Well, make sure you stick around to hear what happened to that sheet. I'll give you a hint. Uh, It feels a lot lighter today. And if you are a sheep producer, I'm sure you've come across one or two of those in your time. That sheep, that's Mr. Shearing hiding in the bush or something. But five years? Goodness me. Uh, We'll have more on that after the news and weather at 12.30. First, though, it now looks like legal action could be taken by the companies that insured some farmers whose properties were damaged in February's severe fires in the Corrigan area, about 230 kilometres southeast of Perth. The Department of Fire and Emergency Services estimates the Corrigan fire burnt through 45,000 hectares of land on 48 properties, including four homes. Corrigan farmer Stephen Bolt thought his insurance package was pretty good prior to the blaze, destroying infrastructure and many of his prized show rams and embryo ewes. But he says inflated replacement costs means he and his neighbours will be millions of dollars out of pocket. Stephen Bolt believes the Bruce Rockshire is responsible for the blaze because it granted a burning permit the week before the fire. There'll be some investigation into, you know, that's definitely underway. The, I think the responsibility that falls with, you know, the landholder and, and the Shire of Bruce Rock where, where the permit was issued from and the landholder for lighting, there's, there's no doubt that they'll be uh, looking, you know, from, from affected people to recover losses from, from those areas. When you say that there was a, a responsibility for that permit being issued and then used, describe for me the conditions going into that fire? For me, the, the most staggering thing is, you know, a permit was issued on the 2nd of February. We've just come off uh, the 2021 season was the biggest grain growing season for us, so we had the biggest fuel load we've ever had out here. It's been one of the driest periods from end of October to till when the fire took place. There hadn't been one mill of rain, so we had 100% curing of all, the, all of that biomass. And uh, the catastrophic weather conditions that were forecast, like it's staggering that on the Monday we knew that weather conditions for the weekend were, were going to be bad. By the Wednesday, warnings had been put in place by DFES, warning of catastrophic conditions for that weekend coming. So four days before the fire, I, I went to employee of DFES and, and my concern was for community safety and, and we were going to have a problem. I made it pretty clear that I was extremely concerned about burning being conducted under these conditions. When I get to the Sunday morning and, and I see a fire that's started as a result of that uh, permit being issued, you know, 
I probably haven't got the point of being angry, but, you know, because there's just so much work in front of us, but it's uh, just beyond belief that we're in this situation. So what recourse is being pursued or what can be pursued? Oh, look, the, the insurance companies have engaged a uh, law firm on behalf of not only themselves but affected landholders. So we're very hopeful that there'll be some recovery financially for us all because um, cost is is going to be huge, you know, whether it's just for the local landholders, for our, our local government shire of Corrigan, the amount of roads and and just the, the natural timber and so forth, road clearing. You know, where CBH was uh, side of Ainsworth that was significantly affected by the fire, where the fire actually got into bulkheads. It'll be, you know, a huge recovery bill out of this fire. There's been some speculation or discussion of landholders taking up a class action. Do you think that's likely to happen given the insurers are taking legal action? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought so at this stage, but, um, you know, I think all growers are definitely going to be keen to, to recover some loss because I don't know anyone that, you know, insurance is, is significant for most people. You know, a big part of their business is, is making sure we're well covered, but an event of this size, you know, none of us have got cover that, that would cover all of our losses for sure. Tell me a little bit about the month or so or month or two since the fire. How's the start of this season come along? You know, for me, it's been pretty well seven days a week, you know, rebuilding, looking after stock. But, you know, we've been fortunate. We've had a couple of significant rainfall events, been really good. We've had, uh, like here on my place, recorded over 85 mil of rain in the last uh, two-week period. So probably one of the best starts to a season that I've seen, which certainly will assist, you know, we've, we're able to re- return sheep back to the farm now from adjustment. It'll, uh, it'll de- definitely help where we're lambing down on the green feed, take a bit of the pressure off, but it still doesn't remove the, I suppose, the, the amount of workload that's in front of us. It's going to be huge, you know, for me replacing, you know, some 30-odd k's of fencing. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of hours of work to be put in. You're saying that it's one of the best starts to a season you've just about ever seen. Are you going to be able to take advantage of that with the work still to do in terms of fire recovery? Oh, look, I think it's about prioritising. So for a lot of us now, some of the, the recovery sort of gets put to the side and we'll focus on making sure that we get our crops in. Um, so a lot of work. We've, we've had to go out, you know, myself and other growers had to go out and replace machinery. So that's been probably one of our key priorities uh, at the moment is just to go and make sure that we're set up ready for seeding. Things like fencing, uh, we've, we've got a significant amount done, but there's still a lot of work to do there and that'll get uh, completed as the year goes on. We've been um, assisted, you know, with local growers, but as well as Blaze Aid being out here and, and offering the services. It's, um, we've seen a fair bit of work done over this eight-week period. Does a strong start to the season give you something to be hopeful for? in terms of, you know, the recovery on your own farm and taking some of that pressure off? Oh, look, it's, yeah, we couldn't ask really for a better start uh, given the circumstances we've, we've got in front of us. So it uh, definitely takes the pressure off. It'll, you know, now be making sure we capitalise on that. So, but there's good sowing opportunities. A lot of canola's gone in uh, within the area and um, potential is for a, for a really good start 
and, and a good cropping year, good feed year for the sheep as well. So very thankful for that. That's Courage and Farmer Stephen Bolt speaking there with Angus McIntosh and the president of the Bruce Rockshire has declined to comment on this story. We did get in touch with LGIS, which is the insurance scheme uh, owned and controlled by local government shires. A spokesperson said at this stage they're unaware of any official legal action associated with that Courage and Fire. But Stephen Bolt says the insurers who are taking legal action are WFI, Elders and CGU. Law firm Hall and Wilcox has confirmed it has been engaged by the insurance companies, saying it's early days, but the firm's been engaged to look at potential recovery action for compensation on behalf of people affected by the bushfire. Inquiries are still being undertaken to look at who might be liable, and experts have been engaged to look at the course of the fire. And as I mentioned, DFS estimates that the Corrigan fire burnt around 48 properties, including at least four residential homes, uh, across 45,000 hectares of land. 1,000 livestock have been reportedly lost to DPIRD because of the Corrigan fire and Deputy Commissioner Craig Waters says there was no total fire ban in place for the week leading up to that bushfire and the local government was within its right to issue the burning permits to landholders. But if you're part of a volunteer brigade, maybe you're the chief yourself, does the thought of this class action make you a little bit nervous? And is it time to review how burning permits are issued? And how does the system even work in the first place? Well, Tom Brown was the Chief Bushfire Control Officer for the Shire of Esperance for 25 years and involved as a volunteer for many years before that and now after. He explains how the system works in his part of the state. So there are designated officers within each brigade that uh, know their area and, generally speaking, Uh, and I can only really uh, speak for the Shire of Esperance, Uh, but in my time, that was uh, one or two officers in each brigade, and they had a pretty good idea. They knew their area, and uh, they knew the people and were happy to write permits, uh, if weather permitting. So how do you work that out? How do you assess it? Do you get training in that kind of thing? Uh, In my time, I went to several courses to learn how to write permits because the permit issuing... uh, uh, certificate came out. There were there were more and more updated versions of each one. So each time a new book came out, uh, we got a bit of an update. Uh, training by various uh, DFS officers. Uh, uh, I don't know if that's the right one anymore. Um, but they they came along, taught us how to write the permit, uh, our obligations, and uh, some of the expectations we have out of the people who are being issued the permit. It's a lot of responsibility, Tom. Do you feel it's maybe time to review the process? Tara, there's always a really good uh, idea to review things, to see how they go, and uh, uh, just to make sure that the system is still working. It's working very, very well in our shire. Uh, other shires, uh, I'm not sure. If um, uh, if volunteers are quite happy to put their hand up still, I think it's a really good way to go. Uh, so people on the ground who live there understand it and uh, can take on the risk of writing out a permit without having too much ever come back at them if things go wrong. You talk about things coming back at them and, of course, in the last 24 hours we've heard that it's expected a class action may be brought by a number of insurers uh, after the Corrigan fires early this year. I mean, was 
Was that always a concern for, for you when you were issuing permits? Have you thought about it before? I certainly have, and I'm sure that most volunteers who take on the role of doing some of those uh, leadership roles in brigades think about this all the time. Luckily for me, um, you know, most of it was uh, trouble-free until the last year that I held the role uh, with a large fire coming from, or two large fires in the Shire of Esperance. Uh, so um, I think, yes, certainly everybody understands that, but when you when you do this, you are a volunteer, you know, you're not someone there that's the police you write a uh, uh, a permit so and generally speaking that's because if very few people write the permits they know who's burning and have a pretty good idea that they haven't got too many permits out at any one time so do you think that given it is a volunteer role, as you say, and of course we've seen the introduction of the industrial manslaughter legislation in recent weeks as well, do you think that you know things like that plus um, this class action that's expected to be brought, it, it may weigh on the minds of people who are already volunteers or maybe considering volunteering? I think the further you are away from the event that uh, happened will probably have less an effect on you. But the people that are close to those shires and see the devastation that was caused by a fire, and I have no idea whether there's any fault or whatever, but certainly a cause of fire. And if you're in the middle of that uh, fire scar, it's something that'll be on your mind for a long, long time. So, you know, you're, you might be looking for um, someone's head, some money, Something I don't know, um, but I've always thought that time is the best cure. One good season under your belt, and everything sort of comes back to normal. And uh, you know, you just don't start. You stop looking at all those big windrows of dirt that are blowing through your fence or topsoil that's lost. Uh, it's it's very difficult. Once you become a farmer, you do tend to become attached to the land, and you really feel the pain if anything goes wrong. Absolutely, and we know that there has been a good start to, to seeding in that Corridge and Bruce Rock area and we really do hope that um, it continues for the rest of the season and for seasons to come. I suppose looking back at the, the issuing of burning permits, Tom, I, I mean, if a farmer is issued a permit, I mean, they don't have to use it. How, how much common sense goes into making that decision on an individual level? Well, there are quite a few rules and regulations with permits now. And, you know, if there's a very high fire danger or extreme fire danger or a uh, total fire ban that's been issued by state government, you know, all of those things negate permits. Uh, the other thing, of course, is as a farmer, it would be your role and responsibility to look forward to what's coming weather event-wise. But, you know, we all know that uh, not necessarily are uh, forecasts that exact that something can just brew up that you never knew was going to happen. So always with burning, there will be risk attached to it, Tara. There's uh, And whether it's pushed out to uh, local government writing those permits or state government writing those permits, there always will be risk unless, of course, the, the uh, permit's written for the middle of winter and everything's green. So uh, I think a lot of people will be very keen to carry on burning because it's a fairly economical way to get you forward with either trash load problems or weeds that you've uh, dropped into windrows out the back of your machine. Uh, I, I would like to think that agriculture still had the right to carry on the way we are now, uh, 
without too many more rules and regulations. But if uh, a, a class action is taken and that local government says we can't do this anymore and all local government says, no, we are going to take uh, the role of responsibility of fire issuing uh, uh, permit release or I just feel that's going to inhibit uh, some of the, the the things that we need to do on time in agriculture. Well, that being said, Tom, I mean, do, do these things need to sort of, I suppose, wait until the class action plays out or should it be reassessed now? Well, we're, we're finished this year's burning season, literally anyway, although I do see a few smokes going up around and... Uh, so people are still doing a little bit of stuff, but most areas now have had reasonable rains and uh, there's, uh, you know, there's quite a bit of green out there and uh, fire act or, you know, significant fire activity is coming to the end. Uh, although I have seen May pop up with some pretty severe weather in the past and if that happens again, well, we'll have to be very watchful just to make sure that, you know, they don't go too far. But I, I think that um, the risk is certainly falling away. So by the time this class action sorted out and uh, any any rules that need to be changed or will be changed, I guess uh, that'll be for next burning season. That's Beaumont farmer Tom Brown there. And what do you think about the possibility of legal action being taken after a fire that's caused damage? I'm keen to hear your thoughts on this. The text number is 0448 922604. I've had a chat to some farmers and fire control officers and shire presidents this morning. They're a bit worried about where all of this could be heading uh, and they feel for the individuals involved, including the farmers who obtain a burning permit and the people who may have granted that permit. So send me a text, number again, 0448 922604. This text has just come in. It says... What is staggering about this fire is why the farmers felt the need to burn windrows at the start of February. It's just ludicrous. Um, no name and location on that text. Please let me know your name and where you're from. Mike from Coolan has done exactly that. Thank you, Mike. Uh, he says permits are given out with stipulations. It's up to the landholder to have a safe burn. The buck stops with them. As farmers, we don't need any more restrictions placed on us. And Shane says, unfortunately, the basic principle of common sense didn't come into the thinking when writing the permit. Common sense would have been suggested that lighting fires in early February with a catastrophic or extreme fire danger later in the week was utter stupidity. That comment from Shane on the text line 0448 922604, which is where you can also go to have your say. It's just gone 23 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. Well, as you may have heard in the news, if it wins next month's election, the coalition will guarantee part of a first farm buyer's loan worth up to a million dollars. Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud made the comment in an address to the press club in Canberra today, saying it would be a leg up to help more people become farmers. This is about making sure we protect it from corporate raiders to make sure the little guy gets a go. The young people, the generations that we've lost out of rural and regional Australia and particularly out of agriculture, to give them a helping hand. And also in terms of succession, making sure that we don't lose our best and brightest, that we don't end up a corporate state of agriculture, but continue to invest in young people to come back and to have that go. They have to be able to repay it. 
uh, and it's only called upon uh, if they can't, but the banks make those assessments and we're confident in, in the processes and the working that we're doing with the banks to ensure that Australian taxpayers' money won't be called upon. It's we- coming out of an existing pot of, of money from the Regional Investment Corporation, so it's fully funded, but this we just see this as an opportunity to think differently. So uh, the value of this going guarantor is $75 million. How many first-time farm buyers do you expect you'll be able to help? Well, it's capped at a million dollars, but not everyone will want a million dollars. So we're trialling it over 18 months uh, to see the demand and the opportunity. It obviously uh, will complement what we've already got with AgriStarter, but we haven't seen the dial shift on that. So what we want to do is continue to think differently. And I've got to say, the banks have been very encouraging about how we do this as a pilot to see if this does shift the dial, uh, not only for succession, but those men and women who are leasing country and just need a little bit of a helping hand. So over the next 18 months, uh, we'll assess this and we'll assess all the programs, but we shouldn't stand still. Isn't we should continue to look at the opportunities to make sure we give people the opportunity and hope to stay in Australian agriculture. Isn't this a form of subsidy? Couldn't this jeopardise our free trade agreements? No, it's no subsidy. Uh, in fact, uh, it, it's a commercial arrangement. They have to be able to service the facility uh, and it's, it's assessed by a commercial bank. We already have uh, arrangements uh, around loans to the Regional Investment Corporation. And in fact, of the 37 OECD countries, there's only one country uh, that subsidises their, their farmers less than Australia. So uh, we're more than confident around uh, those risks. And we've obviously looked at that and made sure that it fits within current parameters. And we see this as an opportunity to think progressively. Well, let's talk about who might be eligible for this scheme uh, should the coalition be re-elected. Is it going to be only for first-time farm buyers? No, it's also those... uh, Well, sorry, I should say it's also for those that have bought properties already and and helping them to to do more expansion and development on their property. Uh, It's also those, particularly young people in succession. You know, we've got a big challenge around succession planning in this country. As a former bank manager, I used to sit around kitchen tables and see the challenges that we'd face, the hard discussions. And what we've seen is, unfortunately, in cases we've lost the whole family out of districts and out of agriculture, and we can't can't have that uh, if, if we have an opportunity to fix it. Uh, so this is about making sure that we look at those opportunities that are there. Those that are, that are eligible will be those that just can't walk off the street. They've got to be in Australian agriculture already. The bank's not going to give you your money walking off the street having worked in, in Woolworths for the last 12 months. Uh, you actually have to prove your bona fides. You have to prove that you have the capacity to repay it. Uh, and this basically is, is an effective use of Australian capital that we've set aside through the Regional Investment Corporation. Okay. Well, as a former bank manager, let's have a look at some of the fine print. This scheme is aimed to provide a to-go guarantor on a maximum loan-to-value ratio capped at 70%. That's right. And would apply to loans of a maximum of 10 years. With with the uh, also, there's hardship of two years that allows obviously, uh, for the vagaries of the environment, to ensure that uh, we take into account, and it's obviously an arrangement with the banks. And when you go into an arrangement with the bank, there is there is capital requirements and there is also uh, capital reductions that are required from your facility. So this will be worked in with the banks to make sure that, that they understand the length of that guarantee, um, that it can be called upon, uh, and that they make sure that the loan structures uh, emulate what the requirements are. But we see that the banks uh, are being quite open and honest about this, that this is an opportunity to look differently about succession planning, about those men and women who want to have a go. 
That's Agriculture Minister David Littleproud speaking there with Cass Sullivan about a commitment made by the Coalition today that if re-elected it will guarantee part of a first farm buyer's loan and it would see the government establish a trial program to guarantee 45, sorry, 40 rather percent of an eligible farmer's commercial loan capped at $1 million. And if you'd like to see today's National Press Club debate between Mr Littleproud and the Shadow Agriculture Minister Julie Collins, it will be available on iview if that is your kind of thing uh, coming up close to 12 30 now we will head to the newsroom very shortly after that of course we'll get all of the weather details for for you and um before one o'clock we're going to be heading to new zealand where we're catching up with uh, a local grazier and a shearer who has found a sheep that was alone and unshorn for almost five years. So you can imagine the job ahead of that shearer when that uh, sheep was eventually found. Earlier in the program, though, of course, we were talking about uh, what looks like legal action to be taken by insurance companies that insured some farmers whose properties were damaged in February's severe fires in the Corrigan area. And I've been asking for your comments on the text line 0448 Charlie's text in from Pemberton um, and Charlie said I'm gobsmacked that there isn't a prohibited burning period as there is in the lower southwest shires. It's absolutely crazy. Um, look, I'm not sure, Charlie, of the fine details associated with the permit in question relating to that Corrigan fire um, but I certainly know that we do have prohibited burning periods here in the Esperant Shire as well so maybe we'll have to get some details uh, a little later. But right now it is half past 12 and Ali Colvin is in the news with the headlines. Good afternoon, Ali. More people ah. purchase their first farm. The Agriculture Minister says the government would act as guarantor for 40% of a commercial loan capped at $1 million for eligible farmers. WA's Inspector of Custodial Services says a snap inspection of the state's only juvenile detention facility last year has revealed it was in crisis. Eamon Ryan conducted an unscheduled inspection of Banksia Hill Detention Centre in December and says some detainees have been subject to cruel and inhumane treatment. Mr Ryan says the department has moved quickly to act on his concerns. WACA Chief Executive Christina Matthews says the thoughts of the association are with the family of former WA wicketkeeper Ryan Campbell, who remains in a London hospital after suffering a heart attack on the weekend. The 50-year-old was reportedly playing with his children in a park when he became unwell and received assistance from a passerby while an ambulance was called. Thanks, Tara. All the details in the news at one. Thank you very much, Ali. That's Ali Colvin in the newsroom there. As she mentioned, she'll be back in about 28 and a half minutes' time. Uh, in the meantime, I know plenty of you are keen to know what's going on weather-wise, so let's catch up with duty forecaster Angeline Prasad. Uh, Angeline, I suppose if we start in the southwest land division, please, what's uh, in store for the next few days? Good afternoon, Tara. Yes, so we have got a range of high pressure that's extending across the south of the state, and we had a weak cold front uh, go or brush past the south coast today. So generally, the onshore flow will bring in some cloud and very light showers around the south coast. Uh, but apart from that, weather is going to be pretty benign across the southwest land division. Um, there are a few fires burning uh, across in the southwest, so that might cause, cause some smoke haze um, during the 
uh, during the day, so morning period and overnight um, across um, the southwest district and across the lower west. But apart from that, uh, beautiful autumn conditions continuing across the south. It might get a little bit warmer during the day uh, along the west coast of the southwest land division, uh, but um, just a few degrees above average during the day. But nights will be uh, pretty calm and uh, and cool. Um, across the northwest of the state, we've had a cloud band that has extended across parts of the Gascoigne, uh, the South Interior and the Pilbara over the last few days. And it is continuing to generate um, showers, areas of rain and thunderstorms today. This cloud band will uh, weaken later tomorrow. So over the next 24 hours, we can generally expect about 5 to 10 millimetres. Um, and there might be heavier falls between 15 to 20 millimetres, especially where the thunderstorms are. Uh, but uh, the cloud band is expected to weaken um, from later tomorrow. So uh, a return to more benign conditions um, from tomorrow night across the northwest of the state. Now, across the north of the state, um, we have been seeing... Um, a few showers and isolated thunderstorms generally during the afternoon and evening period over the northern and western uh, Kimberley. And that is likely to continue for the next couple of days. Um, they will become slowly uh, isolated, more isolated, and we will see a more drier easterly flow extend across the Kimberley from Friday onwards. So uh, that's when we see a v very little or nil um, shower or thunderstorm activity going into the long weekend. Now, the drier and uh, drier southeasterly or easterly winds have been causing a build of a little bit of heat across the the southwest part of the Kimberley and the Pilbara coast. So we will see temperatures get up to 38, 39, especially for Broome. Um, we're looking at uh, 39 today, 39 tomorrow. And the temperatures do ease off, but it doesn't really dip down to the mid-30s until early next week. So 37, 38 uh, for the second half of the week and then getting to 35, 36 early next week. Oh goodness me! As a South Coast girl, Angeline, those um those temperatures <laughs> those temperatures make me sweat just thinking about them. Um, any warnings about please? Um, yes. So we have got um, a marine wind warning out. Uh, so today, strong winds across the West Kimberley, the East Pilbara, the Gascoyne and Geraldton coasts. Tomorrow, the strong wind warning will be the, for the West Kimberley and Pilbara coasts. And uh, that's it. Um, we expect, uh, due to the benign conditions across the south of the state, fire dangers will be pretty on the lower side, so we don't expect any warnings uh, this week. Um, so just the marine wind warning that will be on for a couple of days. So, yep, pretty benign conditions for whole Radio. of WA. Thanks so much for keeping us up to date. That's Judy Forecaster, Angeline Prasad there. Uh, Richard Hudson is in the Perth studios. Richard, you've been keeping an eye on the rainfall that's been falling, a little bit around here and there. What have you come across? Yeah, there's not too much, though. In the northern and eastern forecast districts, in the Kimberley, Derby Mains Road recorded 11, Columbaroo 10 and Theta 6. Nothing worth mentioning in the Pilbara. In the Gascoigne, Chewy Creek just scrapes in with four. Made an allowance there. Uh, and then in the southwest, Land Division forecast districts. In the southwest, Pemberton had, yeah, four mils over five days. That's really battling, isn't it? it One is. mil under and over five days, <laughs> gee. <laughs> and Walpole Forestry had 10 mils over two days. And in the southern coastal region, Denmark had between three and 10 mils. And then 
in the Great Southern, Cranbrook had six mils over two days. You can always tell when it's been a bit of a long weekend when we have the rainfall readings over a few days. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Having a day off to have those chocolate eggs, I think, Richard. Just a quick text that's come in on the fire burning and the permits story that we've been talking about in that first half. This one says landowners need to stop believing permits are a right. At times, fire control officers are challenged for not issuing permits. No name and uh, location on that one, but uh, please, if you're going to text in, please do put your name and your location to it so that we know who it is and where you're from. The text number again, 0448 922 The WA Country Hour with Tara DeLandgraaf on ABC Radio WA. Where the time is 23 minutes to one. Thanks so much for your company today. Well, across Western Australia, 12 pretty special soil experiments are underway. Each is taking constrained soil and re-engineering it to see what happens in subsequent crops. Now, re-engineering means digging up the soil to a depth of about 80 centimetres and giving it what it needs, so lime, compost or simply reducing compaction, before then rolling lightly and sowing for the coming season. Lucinda Jose travelled to Carnamar to meet Deep Herd's Wayne Parker and Dr Gauss Asim to see the excavation. What you're looking at here is an excavator and large loader uh, peeling back layers of soil within a soil pit, uh, keeping those layers separate. And then there's a a horde of minions in fluoro vests running around um, putting amendments to the layers of soil as we put those layers of soil back together again. That's Wayne Parker. He's leading this particular experiment in Carnamar and he's already done one in Northampton. All up 12 different soil types will get the re-engineering treatment. In this sodic soil in Carnamar, trenches are being dug in layers. Each layer is kept separate and improved with seven different treatments. It's a bit like deconstructing and reconstructing a layer cake. As we're putting it back, we're putting back a, a couple of amendments. One of which is, and this is the beauty of this project, one of which is an acid wadule sand. Now we know that putting an alkaline carbonate rich soil like we've got here uh, in our 40 to 80 centimetre layer, spreading that out over an acidic soil will increase our pH from low levels. So what we're actually doing is hoping that we might be able to do the inverse by putting this acidic wadule soil into our carbonate layers at, at 20 to 80 Uh, we're hoping that we can decrease the pH in this soil. When you dig a pit in these soils, these sorts of soils, and I've seen it across across this region, Minganew, Morawar, Mullawar and south of here, south of Kahnemar, it's not unusual to find roots stuck at 40 centimetres. So they're not getting below 40 centimetres, it just becomes too hostile. And what that means is that we've only got 40 centimetres for a crop to grow in. It's missing out on the the water that's below that. And in these uh, changing times, we're trying to access as much water as we possibly can. And we're fortunate with the scope of this project that we can really push and look at some completely blue sky, completely out of completely out of context, out of out of the ability of of current 
growers to, to achieve, but um, yeah, some concepts that we might be able to combat and get those roots a bit below uh, 40 centimetres. This experiment is a soil scientist's dream. It's the kind of thing talked about in tea rooms. Wouldn't it be good if we could just dig things up and start fresh? All the machinery and manpower is expensive, though. The Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development, with GRDC, have put in $22 million. But the results... Dr Gauss-Azam is overseeing the 12 experiments and is very excited about the yields achieved. The first soil type was wadjil sand at Kalani, the type of country that in a good season, like 2018, produced 1.4 tonnes of grain. But after re-engineering... In that season we had 3.5 tonnes. And that's 2.1 extra tonne of wheat without irrigation. Right, you didn't change the water. It's the same water. You didn't change the nutrient. What Bob applied, same amount of food, but you're producing more than double. Right, that's the first thing. And then, the last year we did six. In the Godless, we, the Wen Parkers one in Chilimani or Northampton, we had um, again 1.5 ton, but that became 3.5 ton. You know, is is it? Ton. We're talking about ton. We're not talking about kilogram or like 150 kilogram. We're not talking like bankers. Oh, can you increase my profit by 3%? No. It's 100%, 150% extra yield. So that, that is massive. The project is described as blue sky and pushing the boundaries of what is possible. Digging up whole paddocks is not practical. But Dr. Azam argues when you're potentially doubling yields, what's practical changes. I don't know when people think, oh, it's not possible, it cannot be done in the farm scale. You never know. When you're growing this type of bigger crop, $1,500 every year extra, and if you put that times 10, that's $15,000, $20,000 per hectare, you know. And then farmers, they're smart. Bankers, they're smart. They'll smell the money. <laughs> and they'll say, hey, do you need a million? Yeah, I'll put for you. Uh, and you grow. And we have to think that way because you remember the Green, green Revolution, right? We'll be in hunger if we didn't have this NPK, all those inorganic fertilizer. Because we used to grow half a ton of crop in this country. But because of this invention, we now grow one and a half, two ton, wherever you are, four ton. So we, we have to learn to, you know, farm differently and feed this, you know, future generation. That's Dr. Gaz Azam there, and he leads the Reengineering Soils Project, which is a collaboration between the GRDC and the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. Now, we kind of turn our attention to the mining industry for a moment because you hear a lot these days about the clean energy future, focusing on renewables, hydrogen and so-called green metals. Well, green metals are things like lithium, cobalt, nickel and copper, which are all vital in the production of batteries and electric vehicles. But those important metals can be difficult to find and to mine. Well, work's being done by researchers across the world to make it easier to discover and extract these green metals and have less of an impact on the environment. UWA professor Marco Fiorini is part of the research and he hopes it will lead to smarter mining. 
depending on the type of metal, we have a wide range of geological environments where these type of metals can be sought and found. But we need to be smart about it because these metals are not easy to be spotted and uh, they are even more difficult to be found and mined. So you talk about the geological location and storage of green metals. What has your research showed you about where they're stored and how best to target them? Our ongoing research, uh, which uh, in this specific case was uh, focused on some specific environments in northwest Italy, where rocks that generally out that generally are sitting uh, 20 to 30 kilometers um, uh, at depth uh, on Earth uh, are lying at surface. So study of those rocks has shown us that um, our planet uh, behaves um, as a sort of living organism when it comes to producing, if you wish, this type of green metals uh, and storing them in different geological environments. To cut a very long story short, most of these green metals are generally stored and concentrated in the mantle of our planet. So most of you may know that the mantle is generally inaccessible. It's that part of our planet that generally lies 50 to 100 kilometers at depth. However, geological processes that uh, we have been um, documenting and understanding point to the presence of uh, valves occurring at the interface between these mantle reservoirs and the overlying crust that locally and spatially permit or stop the transfer of metals from the mantle to the overlying crust. In other words, uh, we can understand and predict uh, geological mechanisms that may basically favor the transfer of these metals such as copper, nickel, cobalt, and so on and so forth from the depths of our planet onto the surface where we can basically explore for them, localize them, and uh, sustainably mine them. Does this mean that mining could potentially be more targeted and lead to, I guess, less waste, wasted time or less disturbance of the land? That's actually our real focus. Basically, we all agree that we need these metals in order to favor this uh, energy transition, the green energy transition. But we don't want... Uh, to create a bigger problem than the one we have by basically going crazy and creating a, um, basically problem with the exploitation of these metals. So what we want to do is uh, devising smarter exploration strategies that allow us to predict the localization of these green metals so that we can surgically, if you wish, find them uh, minimizing disturbance to the landscape and minimizing the use of precious resources such as water and electricity and basically uh, surgically identify them and mine them uh, through techniques that are becoming more and more sustainable as well. In fact, uh, in the future, we won't have to create uh, large open pit mines. Uh, we won't have to disturb quite a lot of landscape, but uh, most likely we will be able to identify and mine these metal occurrences uh, in situ, 
So we will be able to extract the metal without uh, disturbing everything that surrounds it. That's Professor Marco Fiorentini there from the Centre of of Exploration Targeting at the University of Western Australia speaking with Samantha Gerling about that research to better target exploration and reduce the environmental footprint of mining. And that research is being carried out by an international team of researchers from UWA, University of Leicester and Cardiff University in partnership with BHP. It's coming up 11 minutes to one on the Country Hour. Well, if you've had to make a trip to the petrol bowser recently, you know the experience is less than pleasant given soaring fuel prices. And it's enough to make some regional Australians who require fuel not just to drive a vehicle but to operate in day-to-day life consider going off-grid. Lucy Cooper filed this report. Farms and stations are often run off diesel generators, but with high fuel prices, the desire to move to alternate energy sources is growing. Chris Braley is an electrical contractor who specialises in solar energy based in Charleville in southwest Queensland. He says business is booming as the transition to off-grid is in full steam ahead. Further north and over the territory and stuff, there's a fair bit of it happening. Um, a lot of those places... Um, Big diesel bills, but it just runs on generator 24 hours a day. Are, are pretty keen on it at the moment. Um, yeah, we're, we're pretty well, we're pretty well booked up most of the year with uh, with that sort of things. Would you say a lot of your business is people converting from that uh, diesel generators to solar? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, most of these places, some of these, some of the bigger places can burn, you know, uh, three or four hundred liters a day. Um, and some of the real big places up to sort of 600 litres a day in diesel. And at the moment where it's just hit $2 at the Bowser uh, in town, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, the few hundred thousand dollars you've got to spend on solar to convert, um, it, it'd be probably silly not to. And for people listening, you know, really feeling the squeeze of that diesel and they're running off generators out on their station, mm. what would you say are the advantages of going off grid? Oh, well, the biggest thing would be uh, the long-term savings. Yeah, for example, I mean, some, some places who spend, you know, some of those bigger places are spending, you know, two or $300,000 a year on diesel um, to, run, to run a homestead um, when they can go and spend, you know, five or $600,000 putting off-grid in um, that, you know, if it's, if, it's a, if, if it's a big enough off-grid or it's designed properly, then... You know, if they're not running a gen- diesel generator at all, then really your returns, you, you know, you, you, you've paid it off in three, four, five years. And and um, with sort of the, um, the the gear we're putting in now, um, you know, we're, mainly the batteries, we're sort of um, getting to the 10 years out of them um, on average. Uh, you know, if you've got the system like that, paid off in the first four or five years, and after that, it's money in the bank. Do you feel like we're quite in a period of transition where those diesel price hikes have really just prompted people to finally make that switch to off-grid? Yeah, I think so. Um, I find there's probably two two kinds of people who go with solar and it's almost down, split down the middle. Half of them do it because it makes them feel good <laughs> and the other half do it for financial reasons. I think if you're going off-grid, it's probably a little bit of both, but more, more so financial reasons. Um, with just the cost of everything at the moment. 
you know, running a, running a station as it is is already pretty expensive. So if you can reduce things like, you know, your diesel bill, for example, which would be some places, some of their highest, you know, running costs. Um, and so I think overall, yeah, it'd be way more economical to, to look into off-grid and move away from diesel as much as you can. Chris Braley, an electrical contractor based in Charleville in southwest Queensland. In the Channel Country, word of Chris's work has spread. And he's now working with Rick and Anne Britton to install a solar project on their Bullia property, Goodwood. Rick spoke with Madeline McCosker about getting started with their project. We've been given consideration probably for the last four or five years, but it's been put on the back burner due to droughts and whatnot else and the low commodity prices, whatever. Um, things have turned around a bit now and the interest rates are pretty low. So we've actually ordered it and paid a deposit, so it's just a matter of getting all that together. And so how big is the project that you're undertaking at the moment at Goodwood? Uh, made equal to about 80 kilowatts, so it's a pretty big system that we're going to put in. How much are you expecting that this will allow you to save? Probably we'll recuperate our money within 15 years, and it's been given a 25 to 30-year guarantee um, life. Um, so, you know, if we go into 30 years... You know, as more technology, we'll make sure that we're, we're putting aside money to make sure we keep up everything upgraded as we go forward, as technology improves. So, yeah, mate, I think it's, well, we hope that, you know, in the long run, uh, we'll be self-sufficient. That's Bullier Grazer, Rick Britton, speaking there with Madeline McCosker. Now, there's no Mushay sheep sale this week, but I've still got an ovine fix for you because a merino weather has been found in the foothills of Mount Cook on New Zealand's South Island. What's so special about that, you might ask? Well, it's been alone and unshorn for almost five years. The sheep was found last Thursday and shorn yesterday at the Tekapo Easter Monday Market. Local grazier Emily Goodham explains how she found the sheep. Well, on the Thursday afternoon, uh, morning, sorry, we were sit off and there was Joel, myself and Steve and I got the high road so I followed the top of the hills and I was stumbling across with my two young dogs, Jet and Clove, and we ran into each other because obviously he was kind of wool blind, he didn't really see or hear me. And yeah, I kind of wasn't expecting to see him either because I got told he um, was no longer up there because he passed away. Um, so when I got up there, it was pretty, pretty shocking actually. And my young Huntaway, obviously being five months old, he saw him and had a bark and kind of scared him a little bit. And but we soon decided to push him down the hill and try and match him up with some another mob but um he's a bit of a lone wolf he didn't really want to match up as sheep do and so he just um went down over around the hill and I wasn't obviously being so hill country and steep I wasn't fast enough to keep up so I lost him and so I just kept looking and just as a tried to keep moving along and thought Steve may have grabbed him but no once we got to the bottom with all the 500 other weathers he he was not in and of course you can't miss him with him being as woolly as he is and um yeah so then at lunchtime we uh all discussed oh, whether it should be a good idea to go back up and get him and <laughs> Joel and I decided that it would be um good idea to go at least have a look for him because it's a bit unfair leaving him up there by himself and so yeah we went up and we parked in like a low dip in the same area that I lost him before 
and um, yeah, I heard a bar, and I was told Joel, I heard a bar, and we started walking down the hill a little bit, and there he was just sitting there looking at us, and well, just waiting for you. Yeah, waiting, and um, so um, I went back up to the top of the hill, grabbed Ziggy, wherever he's gone. Um, Ziggy's the dog. Yeah, Ziggy, yep. Ziggy's <laughs> the dog. He's a, he's a bit more experienced and older and wiser than my young two dogs that I tried him first. And um, so Ziggy and I walked back up the hill and around him and Joel kind of distracted him at the top and we tried to kind of snuck up on him and grabbed him and carried him back up the hill and put him in the truck and here he is. (laughs) So I'm gathering he wasn't moving that quickly. No, he wasn't moving too fast, but he still had a bit of speed to him. I'm amazed we managed to find him because we had 315 hectares to find him and that was pretty happy with the manager we did. He just kind of sat there and looked at us and... Yeah. So what's what's the story behind him? Because you reckon he was separated from his mum at yes. what, about five years ago? Yes. So, um, well, the block we found him in doesn't actually get ewes and lambs in it. So the block below it does. So we reckon his mum may have left him in a bush just while she in the just to go and have a munch and she would have left him in there for her have a sleep. And then we might have come along and moved them out and she forgot to go get him. And so he would have um, gone and just been a hermit or a lone wolf in some words and um he's just enjoyed life by himself and he still likes it being by himself but when we do get him home today we're going to put a special ear tag in his ear so we know who he is and so we can keep an eye on him through next years or so as his life what's the plan for him has he got a nice life ahead Uh, yeah he will he won't have to fight the tussocks and the rabbits for his food so he's going to be pretty shocked when he sees over the winter the tractor drives past him and drops the food straight at his feet (laughs) um just going to join the mob and he'll probably get shorn again in september with the rest of the weathers because obviously that's when we shear each year um but yeah he's just join up and be just a normal everyday sheep again and hopefully not get lost on that block again. <laughs> you know where to find him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's High Country Sheep producer Emily Goodham from Takapai explaining how hermit sheep Shrekapo came to be the star attraction at yesterday's Easter Monday market. And Tony Dobbs was the man given the job of shearing him. In the end, he cut 18.6 kilograms of wool. With, uh, when you're trying to shear a sheep with this amount of wool on it, it's just the weight and um, the whole time as you're shearing a section of the sheep, the wool's wanting to fall away and obviously lift the skin and that's the big priority. We want to have a good experience for the sheep and for the crowd to see that experience and um, not cut the sheep. He seemed pretty docile. Is that just the weight of the wool keeping him down? Uh, probably it's a combination of him not being around humans or obviously he hasn't been around his own like, you know, the other sheep and um, he was right out of his comfort zone and he just sort of went with the moment, yeah. And that's why I said to uh, Snow at the end of the shearing, I said uh, his personality will tr- change as soon as he's been shorn and he'll be like a pet. You'll be able to lead him around because I've done a couple before in other circumstances and they were like little kittens. Say he almost looked a bit embarrassed up there. He's naked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, um, he'll be wondering what's going on because he doesn't normally like sheep are shorn every 12 months, you know, the merino breed in this um, country, and um, like for him never to be shorn. Never to be shorn. Never to be shorn, yeah. So, I mean, he'll be wondering what's going on here, and he's probably never had much contact with humans, to be honest. So well, what are we doing here? And hang on, we're losing our, um, our clothes at the same time. 
That's New Zealand Shearer, Tony Hobbs. Thanks, everybody, for your contributions for today's Country Hour. Time now to head to the news, 1 o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.